Amen. I'm glad to see you in worship this morning. We're here to lift up the name of our Lord Jesus. Let's stand together. Brethren, we have met to worship. Nothing. 
We have the wonderful opportunity as a church family to gather around the Lord's table this morning and to remember everything that Jesus has done for us in giving of his life as a sacrifice for our sins and also proclaiming his death until he comes, knowing that if he kept the first promises, he will keep the last promise to return and take us to be with him. Uh, the Apostle Paul reflects upon uh, the Lord's Supper 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where he says, I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we gather this morning to remember what Jesus has done for us, of course, we know that there are no special uh, features of the Lord's table. They're not special in any kind of consecrated way. You don't receive salvation by taking of these elements. But what you do when you take these elements is proclaim to those around that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you proclaim to him that you're wanting to walk in faith and you're wanting to continue to follow him and to lift him up and to share him with others. And so as we journey through this supper together, we want to partake as the Lord instructed us. We begin with the bread. And as Jesus took that bread that night, which was a very common element of any meal, even more so than it is in our own day, as he looked at that bread and he reflected upon it and he saw the piercings that were in it, as he saw the uh, marks where it had been a little bruised by the flames, he was reminded of what his body would look like in a few hours, where his body would be pierced, where it would be bruised, all for us. His body would be broken for us so that ours would not be. May we go to the Lord and thank him for his body, which is broken for us. Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you that we can have salvation because of what you did. We thank you, Lord, that though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that we do not have to pay the death ourselves as long as we accept the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. And so thank you, Lord, for enduring the beatings that you endured for our sins. Thank you for the bruise, bruises, the piercings, and the crucifixion. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to pay for us. We thank you, and we celebrate what you did this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. true in remembrance 
Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, in the same way, he took the cup. And as he peered into that, he couldn't help but think about how his blood would be shed in just a few hours. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That the greatest commodity of life has to cover the greatest offense of life, which is sin. And so as we take this cup and as we peer into it, remember what Jesus did to cover our sins with his blood. There is power in the blood of Jesus. What can make us white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for the cup. We thank you, Lord, that we can... Our, our sins can be covered. We can be washed white as snow by your blood. Lord, thank you for shedding your blood for our sins so that our sins might be forgiven. Thank you for making a way where there seemed to be no way. We are grateful for you and we stand in awe of you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. stained my every 
such wondrous love that makes me one your priceless blood has bought oh the precious blood that flowed from mercy's side washed away my sin when christ my savior died oh the the crucified it speaks for me before your throne where I stand justified crown of thorns pierced hands and feet above precious blood of Christ crucified. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. As our deacons return to their seats, our ushers will be coming forward to take our morning offering and Mr. Carol Lowe will be coming to offer our morning prayer. Help us out as uh, you leave today. If you would take your cups with you and dispose of them in the trash cans in the foyer, that would be a great help for us. Thank you. Our Father, we thank Thee for the blessings that You give us, undeserved, and yet, our Father, as Your children, You, t you bless us. Thank You for the privilege of being at Your table today reviewing very briefly but yet also meaningfully your sacrifice for us. Now it's our turn, our Father, to give to you. May we do it in a spirit of worship and a spirit of wanting to honor you for your sake that the world may know through our giving that your life was given for their salvation. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
For those of you who may remember that song is one by Scott Sontag that he taught us uh, when he was here last time. It was a great song. And, and John, I wanted to apologize. I completely forgot you back in the corner when I was giving the elements to the orchestra. So second service is your service for the <laughs> Lord's Supper. Sorry for that. I sat down and went, oh, John's back there. So nervous not to trip over something and spill juice everywhere. Uh, you know, one of the most important uh, things that we do as believers is what we're doing today, and that is worship. Uh, it's one of the great privileges that we have, and yet worship is a constant struggle for most people and churches. For example, church folks argue about worship more than anything else. Well, you know that. Some of you do it. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote my book called The Privilege of Worship largely because I was so tired of people fighting so-called worship wars while completely missing the true privilege of that is ours in worship. Uh, but worship isn't just something we war over, it's also something that we struggle with. It's it's easy to disconnect in worship or it's easy to just go through the motions in worship. We sing powerful uh, words to songs as we did this morning, but we don't reflect on what we're singing or our minds wander during the prayers or some people even get a good nap during the sermon every Sunday and they may be round in the first head nod, so give them an elbow right now. Uh, when it comes to our struggle with worship, have you ever wondered why? Why is it that churches fuss about worship so much? Why is it that it's so easy to struggle with worship or to go through the motions in worship? Well, I think it's the, because we, we are fighting a spiritual battle and Satan is working against us. He knows the power that comes from worship. He knows that this intimate, dynamic encounter with God is a threat to his dominion. And so he knows that it's often in worship that we get right with God, that we are motivated to serve God, that we respond to the call of God, that we determine to live for God. And so he is threatened and he is working in every way he can to stir up the wars, to uh, make us check out, to say it's okay to just go through the motions. And he's been doing it since the beginning of time. The second issue that Malachi deals with in his book is the issue of worship. If you haven't already, please turn there in your Bible to Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, and we'll be going through chapter 2, verse 9. This is one of the passages that was so strong when I taught through this earlier twice uh, back in the winter Bible studies. And while most of what I will share is mine today, I do want to give credit to the writer of the winter Bible study notes because I've, some of the explanation is his as well. Uh, remember, that Malachi ministered about 150 years after the exile ended and uh, the people who moved back to Jerusalem expected the, a kind of promised land experience as they returned back, but instead that's not what they found at all. In fact, uh, they came back to disaster. In addition to the disaster they found of their ancestral homes and the land that was there, uh, most of them faced severe poverty of the likes that you and I have never experienced. And in other words, things weren't quite like they expected. And by the time of Malachi, disappointment prevailed. Complacency was setting in because the people who were once passionate for God, the things that had happened had caused their zeal to wane and for complacency to set in. And so Malachi's book is, is a set of six disputations between God and the people of Israel. And today we look at that second dispute, which deals with the people's worship. Now, they weren't warring over worship. No one cared whether they were singing contemporary songs or hymns or wearing jeans or suits. They, nobody was arguing about that. What they were struggling with, though, was just going through the motions. Going through the motions of worship. From priest to people, worship was a blasé practice. But don't think that blasé worship is not a big deal. 
that it's okay as long as you show up to church to go through the motions of church. In this dispute of worship, God points out that the people's worship is despicable. Their worship was despicable because it was a go through the motions, throw it together, heartless, disengaged, anything goes kind of routine. And so really what they called worship wasn't worship at all. So we might ask, what is worship? Well, the definition we teach here and that I've included in my book is this, that worship is communion with God, a conversation with God in which believers center and focus their mind's attention and their heart's affection, worshiping in both spirit and in truth. They focus on the Lord in response to his greatness and his word, in response to everything that he's done. In short, worship is a dynamic encounter with the living God in which we have a focused conversation with the one who made us and saved us. Worship is not styles of music or dress. It's not routines and traditions. All of that's peripheral. Worship is about a heart relationship with God. And therefore, worship is a privilege. Because God has allowed this awesome privilege, though, he desires and demands genuine worship from his people. And what he most desires is genuine worship from his people who are on fire for him. So how do we get that? How can we have genuine worship? Well, we can, we can learn from the mistakes of the Israelites and that's what we're going to do today. The first principle I want to point out is that to have genuine worship, you must honor and respect God. In verse 6 of chapter 1, we read this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me? says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. Last week, we talked about God as our Father and all the wonderful things that he does for us. If we have a heavenly Father who is that good to us, shouldn't we honor and respect him? And of course we should. But the people in Malachi's day were not respecting God. They were not honoring God. God asked them then, if I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I am your master, where is the respect due me? You have shown contempt for my name. You might circle that word name there because it's a big thing to Malachi. In fact, Malachi mentions the word name six times in the first chapter. And that's because to the Israelites, a name represented far more than just a way to address someone. A person's name represented his or her very essence, who they were. Parents in Bible times considered carefully before naming their babies. At times, a person received a new name when faced with a new calling. For just one example, Moses renamed Hosea, he saves, to Joshua, God saves. Today, we don't always look for names with meaning when we're naming our kids. Rebecca and I actually did that, though, for our boys. Zachary means God remembered because we prayed long and hard before we finally had him. And then Evan means God is good because we wanted the constant reminder that even though Evan's not like other kids, God is good. But most people pick names simply because we like a name or maybe it's a family name and we put those names together and we just give the name our own meaning, right? And so whatever name we have comes to mean what we give it. Well, when it comes to God's name, we know exactly what we're dealing with because God has given his name plenty of meaning. We don't have to look up in a, in a book other than the Bible to find out what God's name means. God has given his name meaning. To know God's name is to know God, to know his holiness, to know his power, to know uh, his love. And when God's people honor his name, then they honor him. To fail to live up to God's standards and commands show dishonor to him and the despising of his name. That honor that we show God should include what he talks about here, this respect or even Fear. 
Fear in the Bible describes that idea of awesome response to God. Fear carries the idea of reverence or respect, but more than those, an internal terror, even an awe and an obedience to God, knowing that you want to show ultimate respect to God and not defame his name. When we grasp how awesome and holy and powerful and yet how loving God is, our response should be that of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord highly exalted and he fell on his face before God and he said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. There was immediate reverence and praise and there was also immediate repentance and then there was a response to the call of God on his life when God said, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Send me, O Lord send me. Worship in Malachi's day had grown despicable because the people no longer honored God's name. They no longer feared him. But the people had been allowed to grow in that way because the priest had allowed it to happen. They were setting a bad example themselves. And so God levies a heavy charge on the priest in saying, it's you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. God's priests, the ones who were closest physically to the sacred things, had failed in their most sacred task of honoring God. And as the leaders failed, then the people would, were failing. Spiritual leaders and any believer can grow to the point of what I call famished by the familiar. Famished by the familiar. Though we are in the presence of the holy, we treat it as ordinary. Though we have the privilege of, of going into the presence of God in worship, we treat it as nothing more special than a trip to the grocery store. Though we should be filled with the knowledge and the wonder of God, we are famished by the familiar. It's just what we do. To be reminded of how famished with the familiar any of us can become, take a glimpse at the fresh and vibrant worship of a person who has recently been saved out of a life of despair by the power of Jesus. Your cultural, casual Christianity will stare back at you in the most real way when you see reflected before you a person who is so glad to know that they were once blind and now see, they were once lost and now found. And you'll go, yeah, me too. Our casual cultural Christianity helps, causes us to just drift into this famished with familiar mode. Sometimes you can also look into the face of a child and remember a childlike faith and that'll boost your own. Uh, on Friday afternoon, Rebecca was at a Bethmore conference in Baton Rouge and I was keeping the boys and I had told Zach that we would go to the hospital to check on Lee Stagg uh, when Evan woke up from his nap. Uh, we were already getting two babysitters for yesterday. I didn't want to try to get another one for uh, Friday. And so uh, while Evan was still napping, uh, I got the text and the call that um, Mr. Lee had passed away. And so I told Zach that we wouldn't need to go to the hospital after all because Mr. Lee had passed away and had gone to see Jesus just like Mr. Truett had that morning. And Zach smiled. And I'm thinking, don't make a joke here, kid. But he smiled and he said, we can be happy that they're with Jesus. And frankly, I wasn't happy. <laughs> After almost nine years of ministry, funerals are getting pretty hard emotionally. And, but God used that word from Zach to remind me and encourage me and boost my own frank faith. Frankly, I realized I was famished with the familiarity of grief. And my eight-year-old was able to remind me that death isn't all that bad for a believer. Of course, the priest had gone way farther than most of us ever have. And I hope that ever will. Um, God says that they showed contempt for his name or your translations say they despised his name. And that word can be understood to mean raise the head disdainfully. It literally and spiritually shows that the priests were turning up their noses at God. They honored him with their lips, but not with their hearts. 
If worship is a time when we humbly glorify God, we can't very well humbly glorify God if we're turning up our noses at him. And so in worship, we have to honor and we respect God. We approach worship with a sense of awe and wonder and awesome privilege. We must honor and respect God. The second thing we can learn from the Israelites' bad example is that in order to have genuine worship, you must offer worthy sacrifices. Look at verses 7 and following. After Jesus, or God gives that command to the priest, it's you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. He ends verse 6 saying this, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? The Bible Project has, a, has video intros online for all the different books of the Bible and several biblical themes. And I encourage you, if you're ever going through a, a study, look them up. They're free and you can look at these. And uh, their video about Malachi features this cartoon, which I, I hope that you can see part of it. But what basically it shows two guys bringing uh, gifts to the sacrificial table. And one has a goat that is throwing up. And the other has a sheep that is three-eyed and has, is obviously bug-infested because there's bugs flying all around it. And the priests are lackadaisical there at the altar saying, no problem, it's fine, bring it on, we're good. Now, the picture is funny because you've got a throwing up goat and a three-eyed sheep, but it captures how despicable the people's worship was. It really was kind of like this. The people brought blind, stolen, lame, sick animals for the sacrifices and the priests simply allowed it. And by accepting the disqualified sacrifices, the priests were showing that they had disdain for God. Now, an important question we might ask is, why wouldn't God accept the lame or the blind or the sick animals? Wouldn't such strict restrictions be kind of a, a burden for the people? Wouldn't it be more economical to kind of, uh, God say, okay, what I'll, I'll just take the coals and you keep the good stuff. I mean, they're just going to be sacrificed anyway. Well, that's not God's standard. In fact, if you go back to Leviticus, God set a high standard for sacrifices, and the reason he set a high standard for sacrifices is because his own son, Jesus, would eventually be sacrificed. He would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He would be the unblemished sacrificial lamb. And so God intended for all of those Old Testament sacrifices as pictures of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And so since God would give his best, he expected the people to give their best not their leftovers, and not the coals. When the priest accepted the cold animals or the gaunt goats or the stolen or sick sheep and the lame lambs, they insulted God. Further, they modeled a lackadaisical, don't-care attitude that infected the people. Essentially, the priest could have just said, God, we believe in you, but you no longer inspire us. You don't excite us anymore. Yeah, you exist but you don't deserve our wholehearted worship. You don't deserve the kind of sacrifices that we should be making. Here's some stuff to appease you and for us to go through the motions, but you no longer inspire. So Malachi challenged the priest in verse 8 by saying, look, if you're accepting this for God, why don't you bring these kind of sacrifices to the governor? Your earthly governor, well, would he accept this kind of Sacrifice, And of course, the answer is no. But if the governor wouldn't accept this sacrifice, why in the world are you bringing it to God? The Winter Bible Study gave a wonderful illustration of this. It said, just imagine a person writing the Internal Revenue Service on April 15th. Dear IRS, I've had a hard time this year. My kids have been sick and my car broke down. I'm sure you understand. 
Best I figure, I owe you $4,000, but I can only pay $200. Please receive my check and I'll see if I can do better next year. That's not going to fly. But do we treat God any better? Dear God, I'm behind on my sleep because of all the activities the children are involved in. It's important for them. You understand if we miss Sunday school and worship this Sunday, don't you? We just need a relaxing day to sleep in. We'll do better next weekend. Oh, please excuse me. I forgot the soccer tournament next Saturday and Sunday. Maybe the week after that, God. I didn't write that. I got that out of the winter Bible study. But that's kind of true. What would that kind of approach indicate about, what, what does that kind of approach indicate about how we value God, the God who loves us so much, who has sent his son for us, who has graced us with salvation? People don't write that kind of letter to the IRS. Why in the world do we expect God to receive it? The people's despicable worship frustrated God. And in verse 10, he says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. Here's what God means by that. I'd rather you go home than go through the motions. I'd rather no worship than this despicable spectacle that you're putting on. I wonder if God ever thinks that of us. God continues, I'm not pleased with you and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. God is so frustrated with the despicable worship because he expects acceptable sacrifices. Acceptable sacrifices advance his name and show that we're serious about our worship of him. If you and I want to have genuine worship, we have to offer acceptable sacrifices. Now you might say, now Stuart, we, we, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. And you're right, and I'm glad. Jesus took care of those sacrifices when he died, as we've celebrated today. But there are still sacrifices. And I'm not sure they are not as important or more important on this side of the cross as the animal sacrifices were on that side of the cross. Just a couple that we could mention. There is the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. When you and I offer praise to God, it is a pleasing aroma of sacrifice to God. We are to continually offer that sacrifice of praise to God. When we're up, we're, praise, we're praising. When we're down, we're to praise. Every day is a sacrifice of praise. If you can't praise God, you aren't offering genuine worship to God. Praise is not based on circumstances. Praise is based in who God is. But the other kind of sacrifice may be the most important, and that is the sacrifice of our lives. Not giving our lives on the altar of death, but giving our lives on the altar of life. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Every day of our lives is to be lived as a sacrifice to God. What God wants most is our obedience, just as he wanted that back in Malachi's day. If you want to have genuine worship, then you have to offer acceptable sacrifices of worship. But also to have genuine worship, you need heart-focused leaders. Look at chapter 2. And now this admonition is for you, O priest. If you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from, the, from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I've sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned away from sin. 
For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way and, have, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. While the people were practicing bad worship, the priests were accepting it. And so God pulls no punches with these leaders of the temple. Grave consequences would come if they did not heed his warning. The warning assumed that they could yet return back to God, that they could repent and honor him. But God wanted a change of attitude and they needed to take it to heart. To the Hebrew, the, the heart of a person was that person's life. And so where knowledge, it was where knowledge was accrued, it was where decisions formed, it was where plans determined the direction of, our, of life. And we have a little bit of that too, like let your heart lead you or know it by heart. I mean, that kind of idea is, is akin to that Hebrew idea of the heart. Malachi warned the priest to respond to the Lord by repentance, sacrificially by treating his worship with holiness. And in verses 8 and 9, he levies four charges against the priests. One, they, they themselves had turned from the way, he says. Their ministry failure began with a failure in their personal lives. Second, they caused many to stumble by their teaching. Uh, God's ministers who served him faithfully can turn away from sin, but those who are unfaithful can cause people to stumble. Third, they violated the covenant of Levi. God had promised an unending uh, legacy of the priesthood to uh, Levite, the Levite Phinehas. And whereas Phinehas had been faithful, these guys were not. And fourth, we see that they showed partiality in their instruction in verse 9. This favoritism may have caused some to, to stumble. And scriptures clearly teach that we must not show partiality. And God was so frustrated by the leader's failings that he said if they didn't repent, then the offal would be spread on their faces and they would be carried out with it. The offal was the innards of the animals that they were sacrificing. And if you've ever uh, gutted an animal hunting or something, you know that's not good stuff. It's stinky, it's nasty, and it's thrown away even today. And back then, they would carry that outside of the camp. And God says, not only is it going to be carried outside of the camp, but you're going to be carried outside of the camp with it because it's going to be smeared all over you. And you're going to be defiled by it. And you're going to be having to be taken out of the camp as well. God says heart-focused leaders are needed for genuine worship. From the pastor to the worship leader to the musicians to anyone who's involved in leading worship. But let us also not miss something else, that the New Testament teaches that all followers of Jesus are priests. And so while this admonition can be applied to those of us in uh, leadership today, it also still applies to all of us today because all of us are priests. We must be doers of the word, carefully considering whether Malachi's charges against the priest in verse 8 and 9 apply to ourselves. God will not continue to put up with his name being defiled. He is a holy God. He's a great king. Our lives must re reflect that he is a holy God to whom we belong. As we look at genuine worship, I, I desire that I have genuine worship in my life. I desire that our church have genuine worship and I desire that you have genuine worship in your life because worship is one of the most important things we do. It's a privilege to be able to climb up into our Heavenly Father's presence and to see Him for who He is, to know Him as He is, and to respond to all that He is and all that He does. May we pursue genuine worship with Him. May we not be complacent. May we not struggle with it or war over it, but may we go right into the throne room and seek the face of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning and we are thankful that you have given us this word and it's always good to have a reminder and a challenge as we deal with worship. Lord, it's hard to describe how important this time is and how powerful it can be. And so Lord, I pray that you would write upon our hearts not just an understanding of the need for genuine worship, but Lord, also 
the understanding of the need to be in worship, seeing God move. And so God, in this time of invitation, we ask that you would stir our hearts and you'd speak to us directly this morning. There may be some in this room who've yet to turn to you as their Lord and Savior, and we pray, Lord, today would be the day of salvation. There may be others that want to come and, and unite with this church, and I pray, Lord, that you would help them settle that decision in their lives today whether this is the place where they're to unite their life in service of you. And Lord, there, we all come to worship each week with all kind of things that have been going on in our lives. And some of us may just need this time to, to lift up those concerns and burdens to you. And so we give that to you. We pray, God, that you would just surround us with your presence during this time of invitation. And may you do your work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.